0: The views expressed on this program are not necessarily those of KUCI, its management, the UC Board of Regents, or the National Commission to Investigate the January 6th Attack on the United States Capitol Complex. Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shamba, welcoming you to the July 27th, 2021 edition of Ask a Leader. My first guest will be Shane Caulfield, he's a PhD candidate from the Earth System Science Department at UCI, and he's bringing his latest work on California's carbon mitigation efforts. And the news is complicated. In the final segment, we're gonna go back Inside the 45th with Ethan Duran. Welcome back to the show. Returning to Ask a Leader is my first guest, Shane Caulfield, PhD candidate at the Department of Earth System Science at UC Irvine, with his latest findings about how California's carbon mitigation efforts may be thwarted by climate change itself. The UCI study looks at how higher heat is limiting the ecosystem's role in removing atmospheric CO2. It's published in the American Geophysical Union Journal. Shane applies remote sensing data and machine learning methods to improve wildfire prediction. These methods predict final fire size at the time of ignition. He is a board member of climate literacy and inquiry and earlier interned at NASA. Shane completed his bachelor's of science in geophysical sciences and environmental science at the University of Chicago, and is Masters of Science in Earth System Science at UC Irvine. His recent findings are making the media circuits. He comes to us today from his home in Irvine. Welcome back to Ask a Leader, Shane Caulfield.
1: Hi, Claudia. Thanks for having me.
0: So I'm going to start with not the softball, but just getting to the real meat about the models that are estimating the trends here There's the rapidity of spread, there's the direction, there's the intensity, there's the type of fuel. Can you just give us maybe a thumbnail about those trends of recent? And then we're going to get into some of the kind of dynamic here of the models in terms of what we're seeing this summer.
1: Sure. So you're just asking about... uh, Well, for people to
0: understand all those moving parts that you're looking at, that make these wildfires such a complicated kind of sure. disaster around on the west coast in British Columbia, in the hinterlands of the US everywhere in the in New England
1: Sure. well I'll start by saying that like you alluded to the fire prediction is just a really really inherently difficult problem. There's just so many different components to it. There's the fuels. That's a really hard part to kind of quantify you know, exactly whether it's trees, grass, shrubs, a mix of them all together to be able to know exactly how much moisture is in the vegetation at every location, how the, the wind and the air is moving through these different areas, which can sometimes be impacted by the fire itself. There's the topography, like the, the slope and the elevation of the land. And then, of course, there's the weather, the temperature, and the wind speed, Something really important that we think about is the vapor pressure deficit. That's kind of how dry the air is for the fire. So there's all these different dimensions to it that really require a high precision to be able to understand how the fire is is going to be moving. It's, It's just a really physically complicated process. And so on the fire modeling front, we've designed equations to describe how the rate of spread of a fire is dependent on the fuels and their moisture content um these are called the the rothamel equations they were developed 40 or 50 years ago honestly and and that's what kind of the existing and practically used fire spread models still rely on today
0: are those those good models though I mean are you saying that believe it or not they're 40 years old they they're (laughs) they're needing radical revision
1: I would say that the models are are old um they probably weren't developed well, they definitely weren't developed under the extreme kind of climate conditions that we're experiencing now. They've gotten us this far. I'm not, I'm not going to say that they're bad models, um, but I definitely think there's room for new techniques, new types of data to be used to kind of help and inform the type of fire spread that we're seeing today. Um, so there's a whole field of research using things like machine learning, artificial intelligence to try, that are fundamentally different from the traditional way of predicting fire. Um, that's being so those are being explored now to try to leverage all the tons of data that we have coming in from satellites and new sensors and things like that. Um, they're not necessarily based on the physics of fire spread, but they can learn a lot of information just from the huge quantity of data that we have about fires.
0: Shane, I just want to ask while we were talking a little bit about the types of fuel for these wildfires. These wildfires do have humans dwelling in some of those areas and they bring different uh, additional kind of fuel are those fuels just not that large a factor as the ones that you've already mentioned
1: no they definitely are so are you, are you talking about
0: well I mean if know, they're going to have their things? gas tank in the back oh, okay. or there's the the kinds of uh, petrochemical household goods the plastics and everything I, I don't know if those are a factor that are of interest at all
1: I, I think they are you know fuels in a in the traditional sense of thing mm-hmm. about fire refers to the vegetation. But what's interesting is that, yeah, humans building their homes are putting in a whole new type of fuels. I think primarily I think about like houses that are that are made out of wood or other flammable building materials. That's basically what happened in in paradise a few years ago is that this fire came through the forest and you look at the pictures and the homes were just totally destroyed way more than the trees were. So, you know, just really flammable materials and the house
0: watching the gas tanks blow up, you know, Yeah, there are
1: gas tanks blowing up all kinds of chemicals that come from, you know, inside the walls, the insulations, the chemicals in a house are really harmful to in the air quality, like we worry about other people breathing that in. But there's definitely a really, really good point there that you bring up, I think, often the what can be the, the most important factor as to whether your house will burn down is whether your neighbors will. Um, because fire can spread house to house even faster than it can through natural vegetation in some circumstances.
0: Okay, so that is for people to let sink in just how elaborate it is, how there are people that are working, they're toiling to just keep fine tuning all of these really elaborate kinds of factors and their interactions. And I imagine part of the modeling is to keep uh, looking more intently at the the interactive part of each of the factors. That's probably the most problematic.
1: Right. All of these are connected to each other, especially the fuels impact how fast the fire spread, which is going to impact how how likely it is for other fuels to burn. Um, We have a lot of cases of fire kind of making its own weather, too. It changes. It adds a lot of heat into the air, um, can even create clouds, or we've seen Rainstorms recently, and a couple of these really big fires. Um, so definitely, everything is kind of interacting with with each other.
0: And we do get to go vivid about that. That's what I want to talk about the, your models currently. So it's sort of a chicken and the egg problem that as the carbon sink is depleted in the forest, it's driving the temperatures upward. It's further depleting the carbon sink capacity in the forest. Talk about that acceleration between the two?
1: Absolutely, that's, that's a really good question. Um, it's something we refer to in science as a positive feedback, not because it's a good thing, but because it's, it reinforces itself. It's like a snowball effect where one thing leads to another and it keeps making, making it worse. So in the case of, of carbon, carbon is the main element that's driving climate change. It's what's in carbon dioxide and methane that are, are greenhouse gases being emitted when we burn fossil fuels. That's what's heating the atmosphere, leading to climate change. And then at the same time, vegetation stores a lot of carbon when when vegetation photosynthesizes, it pulls that carbon out of the atmosphere. So anyways, the positive feedback here is that fire comes through, burns, if it burns really intensely and burns the vegetation, the trees down, that releases carbon to the atmosphere from the vegetation um, that can further warm the planet. In um, this positive feedback loop that make fires worse again. Um, and so in this recent paper that we've been talking about, we're finding that the warming temperatures from climate change and a little bit of the changing precipitation, like maybe we get more droughts, will lead to die-off of, of forests through just the heat itself or from wildfires. And so that means that we can't rely on our vegetation to store as much carbon and help us fight climate change in the first place.
0: And I marvel at the reports of some of the oldest timber in the forests, where the dates of ancient forest fires can be seen in the the cross section of those really really old trees. But now the, those trees are all there. The intensity of the wildfires is eliminating them. There's they're like taking a history with them. But it's even those trees now. It's not a matter they're gonna survive the wildfire episode, they're gonna be eliminated.
1: Right, I think that's really fascinating that the amount of information that we can get from tree rings, it's a whole field of science called dendrochronology. Um, and so looking, you know, we have this amazing record in California, we have trees that are hundreds or literally even thousands of years old. And so we can see the fire scars and know how frequently fires used to happen in the past. And we know that, you know, they happened repeatedly on a on a given tree every maybe 40 or 50 years or or even less, um, especially in the way that Native Americans managed fire really well. But what we're seeing now is, is like you're saying that there's been a period of fire suppression and there's been climate change. There's been more intense fires. So some of these trees that used to survive pretty frequent fires, especially up north, are now being killed by really intense fires and climate change. sometimes the case, sometimes not. I think a lot of the redwoods in the big basin state park that there was a fire last year in 2020. I think a lot of those actually did end up surviving the fire, Um, but it's kind of a mixed bag and it's more common that, that those big trees
0: are being killed. So your work has plotted an extent to which the carbon capacity is being depleted. You've got numbers.
1: Right. We are finding, it really depends on exactly what happens with the climate, but it's somewhere on the order of 5, 10, 15% of the carbon is likely to be lost from our forests. And that's kind of directly opposite to what the state wants to do, which is to put more carbon into our forests as a way to offset our emissions. Um, The goal is to add about 4 or 5% more carbon to the natural ecosystems in order to reach our carbon neutrality by 2045 goal.
0: So it's, if I can use a bank analogy, that if we were going to sequester the carbon in those forested areas, but there, there is less capacity in the forest areas for sequestering the carbon. So it's sort of like you can't bank on those forests. And so the public policy has to catch up with that realization. Isn't that a problem?
1: Yep, exactly. Yeah, you hit the nail on the head, I think.
0: Well, are you guys talking to the governor's office?
1: Not the governor's office directly. We work a lot with um, the California Air Resources Board, um, who is in charge of a lot of the carbon accounting in the forests and our natural ecosystems. Um, So these findings are definitely relevant for their work. It is important work. We we want to manage our forests correctly for climate change and and to maximize the carbon storage um, to the extent that we can. But it may be unrealistic to expect that they're going to take up a lot more carbon over the century with climate change.
0: And, well, we know there is a a little bit of a literacy problem in the governor's office, though, with the kind of water savings goals, water conservation goals. So I think it's incumbent of every involved researcher to just hit the governor's office, the governor's brain trust really hard that there has to be a very ambitious kind of a resource management beyond what they already sort of tip their hand to the public there about. I mean, so I'm, I'm just... Using community radio to drive that point. It's, it's important. So Absolutely. if if the conifers, as you say, if by the end of this century, maybe sooner, if they're going to be replaced by oak vegetation, is there a different value to sinking the sequestering the carbon in oak vegetation?
1: Definitely, there can be. Depends on the type of oak tree. There are some oaks that can grow, grow pretty big and store a lot of carbon. Um, certainly not as much as some of our big pine trees and, and sequoia trees in California. But most of the, oak, the type of oak trees that we're talking about in this case that are probably going to do pretty well under climate change are these scraggly kind of oak trees that grow up in the foothills like of the Sierras. If you've ever driven up toward Yosemite, kind of before you get into the mountains and the forest, there's this hilly area that's it's more like a savanna where you have scattered oak trees that almost look like really big tr- big shrubs more than trees, um, surrounded mostly by grass. And so those oak savanna ecosystems definitely store a lot less carbon than the dense conifer forests of most of the mountain areas.
0: So the replaced species is a, has less capacity. Correct. The, and we have to go all the way up to that domain near the foothills of the Sierras. That's not the kind that we see let's say Ventura County, When we anywhere we'd leave LA County where they were all depleted. It's not those kind of oaks either. It's, we have to go to that species up there near the Sierras.
1: No, you're right. It, it, it is there too. Um, thinking about, yeah, kind of Ventura, a little bit north, there's this ecosystem kind of goes all the way around the Central Valley. Thinking about like Southern California wine country, like above Santa Barbara, kind of Paso Robles area is also a similar, like that oak savanna type ecosystem that's more sparsely populated with trees, more grassy and shrubby than a dense forest.
0: Okay. Well, for those who've just joined us, my guest is Shane Caulfield. He's a PhD candidate at James Randerson's lab at UC Irvine's Department of Earth System Science. His latest work is an article and published in the American Geophysical Union. It's entitled Climate Driven Limits to Future Carbon Storage in California's wildland systems. Joining Shane and James Randerson on this project were Kyle Hemis from Stanford Woods Institute for the Environment at Stanford University, Charles Coben from the Climate and Ecosystem Sciences Division at Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory, and Michael Goulden, UCI Professor of Earth System Science and Ecology and Evolutionary Biology. The study is funded by, for people who keep Track of these things, the National Science Foundation, not the UC National Laboratory Fees Research Program, and California Strategic Growth Council's Climate Change Research Program, asking the tech titans if they want to fund things. This would be a really an important, less shiny object but more essential kind of a project. Guys, looking at you, you know who you are. Really, really, Shane, we should be um, you should be running this by the tech titans if they want to if they want to work on making themselves really hot, they can deal with the wildfire research. Let's ask them.
1: Absolutely, I think there's a huge role for new technology in both climate change generally and especially wildfire prediction.
0: Yeah, so let's now take issue with how mainstream media is looking up and they're taking note of their own paltry coverage of climate climate crisis, climate change, and they're coming to terms with how they need to really post a broader, a higher profile of all of these trends. What, Shane, would you like mainstream media to do better in the service of relaying yours and others' research?
1: First of all, I think there's just a huge need to cover climate change more. It's pretty sad, the, the limited amount of coverage that it gets, even though it's impacting every aspect of our lives and it's going to keep getting worse. Um, I think there's a role for media to communicate not just where the fires are and how many structures are burning or how many people have been injured, all all of which is really important, but also why it's getting so much worse. You know, just reporting it in the context of the really extreme weather conditions that have been happening in the past few years and not trying to oversimplify the problem. It's a really complex combination of, of heat, of climate change, but also the forest management, that the fire suppression and everything up north that's been leading to worse fires in combination with climate change in the past few decades. So I think just you know, everything that can be done to try to communicate the science as best as possible um, will go a long ways to increase general public awareness and maybe advocacy so that we can help address some of these problems.
0: So Shane, the thought occurs to me about this framing that you're talking about You know, why don't we have like the usually it's the general election presidential coverage. We're watching those maps of counties and states that are having poll returns on the the voter. They're, They're tabulating votes in all those areas. Why not have not just a wildfire, but a climate map of factors that are accelerating, decelerating? I mean, just use the map to sort of post people on climate change week to week, if necessary, if necessary, even more frequently, but you know, some kind of, okay, it's time for our climate change graphics folks, like a recurrent thing, not wait for every four years when the NBC guy, so famous now for having that board that he keeps waving his hands and lighting up counties and things like that. So maybe that's one of the tools that's missing here, but it could, it's real doable.
1: I think that's a great idea. One thing we're interested in doing is I think it would be really helpful to develop a tool when you are go online to actively see where fires are burning, to be able to pull up graphs of climate and weather at the same time to see, you know, this fire that's growing really fast and it's threatening the whole area, just to see how much warmer the temperature is in average and how much drier the atmosphere is, um, things like that to put it in the context. But also just like you're saying to make it locally relevant. There are different components of climate change that are impacting different areas to different extents so to be able to to say if you're in the midwest or in the southeast maybe your biggest threat from climate change is is flooding and hurricanes whereas in the west it's going to be droughts and wildfires. I have seen a couple types of interactive websites where you can go in and see how different areas are going to be washed out if the if the sea levels rise by a meter things like that so Definitely, anything to make it to make it personal and to make it local is going to have the biggest impact on waking people up to their to their reality.
0: But Shane, you're talking about some of those websites. I wonder how much traffic they're getting. I mean, there's reliably lots of researchers are going there. But when meteorologists have all those eyeballs on, you know, what kind of traffic, what kind of weather factors where their traffic patterns are involved, their commutes, and but have that meteor, have it be on the meteorologist to set up those maps with those all in play.
1: Yeah, on cable TV, definitely.
0: Yeah, well, this is where a paternalistic kind of federal communications commission could say, you know, part of your license is a climate tracker. Yeah. Yeah, okay. So since you were on this show on many different media platforms, not just KUCI, in the fall of 2019, are you noticing improved literacy, Shane, about wildfires at this point? Are wildfires better understood over the divides than say like how pandemics are being understood?
1: A little bit. I think one thing that's changed regarding wildfires in the past couple of years is 2020 happened, which of course, you know, the pandemic, but also, by far the worst wildfire season we've seen in California with over 4 million acres burning, just kind of blew the, the previous years, years out of the water. Um, so we've set records in 2017, 2018, 2020, now 21 is shaping up. So far this year is even worse than it was not um, last year, but it's just, it's increasingly, every year that goes by, it's increasingly hard to deny the role of climate in these fires. Um, last year, all those giant fires that we saw happened directly because of extreme heat waves that happened. They came in August and September, broke global temperature records. Um, much of the state was above 100 degrees Fahrenheit, and so I, th- I think people are just realizing they're feeling that it's hotter and they're seeing the fires get worse. It's sad that it it takes that much, you know. It has to be extreme and in your backyard, but hopefully, there's there's a little bit more realization now and that we can actually you know start to implement policies going forward to address it
0: policies an excellent segue to the land use collaboration with earth system science whether the vaunted real estate that's out in nature if the land use policies were more mindful addressed the spread of the ex-urban develop into those wildfire areas. That's beyond adaptive behavior. It's It's policies about where we're going to uh, permit humans to be dwelling. So is there a collaboration in terms of people understanding that wildfire hazard? And what do you see as some possible and useful collaboration already happening?
1: It's a great question. It's... Complicated. I'll try to give a fairly short answer, but yeah, what what you alluded to is the wildland urban interface, or WUI, that we call it. Um, That's certainly a huge part of fire risk. Is human development expanding into the wildlands, and you know we have we have a definitely a problem with housing shortage in California. So I wouldn't necessarily advocate against development. You know I think we need more housing development. But it needs to be done safely and and understanding the science and with the right building materials and precautions and things so that it won't conduct fire as
0: much. But but Shane, doesn't it sort of make your skin crawl a little bit when people talk, oh, I just bought myself some property out there and it's just great. There's just nobody around me. Doesn't that just sort of like, how can this person seriously savor this kind of thing when the... Crisis of wildfires is only spiking.
1: It's scary. I don't think I can do it personally. It depends on the neighborhood. You know, we have some pretty wealthy areas in Irvine that have expanded out that direction, and it's you know there's there's a lot of of the correct types of management, and you can tell that it's built up really well. There's these glass walls and a really really clear fuel break between. The properties and the wildlands and you know they're not these cabins in the woods that are kind of the most flammable
0: but to um, the point though i'm just when you talk about that buffer though with all those predictors that you've worked on so are those buffers enough i mean the thing we've seen sparks jump over highways which is a used to be a pretty good buffer but those aren't that reliable if all those factors of wind and Dryness and all that, Uh, yeah. How adequate are those buffers? After all, the ones that you're thinking of in Irvine,
1: they definitely help. You know, and I think it was last, yeah, last year when there was that fire in Irvine, it was able to be contained fairly well, and I don't think structures were damaged. Certainly, no homes were lost. So they make some difference. If as the conditions become more and more extreme, it, you know, it's going to make less of a difference. We've seen cases where sparks can can cross highways and travel almost a mile even. So yeah, it's really complicated. It depends on the situation, but there, there are types of land management interventions that can make a difference in some of the cases. I think in terms of the land management aspect, there's a few different parts of it that are all really important. The one, like you said, is understanding the risks involved with building out housing developments into this wildland u- urban interface I um, mean that's not exactly what I study, but there's a lot of scientists, including at UCI. There's Tirtha Banerjee's lab in engineering that has been putting out a couple papers on that subject. Um, but there's also a lot that can be done, especially in the forests, to to restore historical fire regimes that weren't as intense and destructive. I think maybe one of the most important things that can be done that that I kind of advocate for is returning stewardship of land to indigenous peoples who really know, have a lot of traditional knowledge and understand how to manage fire effectively, how to do prescribed burning at the right kind of the right times of year, so that we can that we can manage the landscape and, and prevent the most intense and destructive fires. That's certainly the case up in the forests of Northern California. In Southern California, it's a very different story. Kind of the most important thing we can do is try to, to stop fires from starting in the first place really lowering our ignitions making safer power lines things like that but regardless of the management it's really clear that the climate change is probably the biggest source of, of the, the problem right now because when it's over 100 degrees and the air is really dry the fire is going to spread and it's going to jump in huge areas so yeah i just i think there's really complex ways that those two interact and there are are policies that, that can address the wildfire problem from every direction.
0: And I want to say that every resource management related conference, Congress that I ever attend is the indigenous person's contingent and they are always making themselves available to contribute to solving this. We are available, we know how to do this, we've got this, bring us into the policymaking, the management operational aspect and so that's I'm so glad you you bring that up that part up and that's all the way up and down the west coast this contribution is vital. it's that's not a, a quaint it's a mode of operating of addressing a huge problem that is every bit as a, as a live and a viable proposition as ever it was before this was inhabited by Europeans so it's a yeah. We're recording this on July 24th. So let's talk about those particular weather elements that are about, that that are phenomenon only amidst the wildfire, like the pyrocumulo, pyrocum. I've been practicing this and I still don't <laughs> have anything to show for it. The pyrocumulonimbus clouds and all of those other sort of, spiraling kinds of whirlwinds, the varying sizes and velocities. Can you talk about those? Which sure. could be something brought up on that meteorological segment I'm wanting mainstream media to pick up.
1: Definitely. There's a lot of interesting meteorology there. And I will admit, I'm not much of a meteorologist myself, but I think, yeah, the concept of pyrocumulonimbus clouds Kind of a fun word, but also terrifying. That's something that's been invented.
0: Yeah, it's got pyro uh, in it.
1: In the past few years. So yeah, it's a, a cumulonimbus is a storm cloud. Pyro at the beginning for fire. Um, these are fires that are generating so much heat and energy from the vegetation burning that it drives a lot of upward motion. You know, as the heat rises, there's some moisture being burned out of the vegetation as well. So it's this convection that can develop a storm cloud directly above the fire in some cases it can create a little bit of rain so it's almost like a negative feedback that could suppress the fire but you know in those cases the fire is already so big and out of control that it it doesn't do a whole lot but yeah it's interesting that this entirely new like weather phenomenon has been happening as a result of these extreme fire conditions and then another one is a fire tornado also terrifying there's I think it was a car fire a couple of years ago, actually. it, I believe it uh, killed a firefighter. So just really, yeah, really horrible, these conditions where I think in that case, it, and there might've been one this summer too, just the right combination of wind coming over the hillside combining with the rising air from a fire could, could generate a, a tornado.
0: So all of those phenomena could be really complicating all your predictor formulas that you've been using these years in your PhD
1: career. Sure, I, I don't think that any fire models that I know of there aren't any that, that are actively accounting for those kind of extreme weather conditions that result from the fire itself.
0: So, well, let's, let's give you a chance to talk about how do young researchers get their sleep? It must be really exhausting with such daunting trends amidst you. Uh, amidst all of us, but dawning trends in, that you're detecting and measuring, working intensely on?
1: Yeah, I think it's difficult. This past year has been rough, too, just being in the isolation of being stuck at home. But yeah, in general, I think earth Earth science, environmental science is often can be a pretty pessimistic field to be in. You know, I'll have friends ask me, is it, is climate change really as bad as as they're saying it is? And the reality is that the more we learn it just it feels like it keeps getting worse it feels like as scientists we're being kind of conservative we're not trying to be perceived as all doom and gloom all the time and and in many cases probably the, the models are underestimating the just how how much temperature how much sea level rise there there could be in the future so yeah kind of it kind of weighs on you sometimes but I think we're all in it because we care. We want to make a difference and it's, you know, it's not too late. There's still a lot that can be done to move us in the right direction. And we need science behind that at every step of the way.
0: So Shane, you bring up something I hope we had covered. I'm glad we have a chance before we conclude the interview is for every earth system scientist had sort of like a, a range, you know, dire scenario, moderate scenario and a conservatively estimated mm-hmm. scenario. So I think when I listen and hear, when I hear from Michael Mann in different appearances he makes and he makes them all the time, he's a desperate researcher, right? And he's talked about, we were only accurate when we used the most dire scenario. So talk about what that's like in this field of earth system science that is there sort of like a collective professional move out of the moderated message the moderated projection and everybody hops on to the extreme dire scenarios is that really where that is that shift occurring
1: yeah i think so um the exact scenarios kind of change with the the iteration of of the set of climate models that's being used every every few years but traditionally A few years ago, the the standard was these relative concentration pathways, RCPs, and there were four of them. And basically, the only one that was really relevant was the worst worst case one. That was the one that we were following and that most of the science was revolving around. It does seem like there's some indication that the reality will be slightly less than our current worst case scenario. Uh, That's in terms of the emissions. So, you know, we do think that we're hopefully on a slightly better path than if we were to continue increasing at the current rate.
0: Yeah, Michelle, I think that's all I have to say. Machine, you said of the emissions, but I'm always sort of in my kind of, uh, my naive to science thinking is, there's still always the interactive effect of all the factors that make everything more right. More of a concern, and so you said that's just the emissions, but we know other things are happening that can accelerate all of these right. trends. So that—that's what. Um, so I, I just heard a conceit in your voice, in your in your word choice of that's just the emissions.
1: Yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, so there's the emission scenario that kind of drives this the science, but in terms of the science, I think in many quick cases it's quite possible that. Um, that we're underestimating the positive feedbacks there. That the way, for example, like the way that the glaciers and ice melt, even if we were able to reduce our emissions, that there are some some processes already in motion that our estimates for sea level rise are probably underestimates.
0: Okay. Well, the final question is, how close are you to defending your dissertation?
1: I'm a year away is my goal. So this time next year, I hope to have graduated. Um, I have one final chapter left. I'm kind of wrapping up the third chapter and starting my the fourth chapter of my PhD, focused more on trying to quantify all these things that we've talked about and, and map out the future of fire risk in California.
0: In California, you're staying here and not in there, I think the last time you're on Alaska came up, and I'm not sure where else. But um, it's your your dissertation is trained exclusively on California, which has so many different domains to it.
1: Yeah, I've been more focused on California now. Maybe you will be expanding a couple of these analyses to the Western U.S. more broadly. But but yeah, I've been more focused in California, where there's some really good data sets we've been working with.
0: Well, as always, Shane, it's so helpful to learn about your research. Thank you for this opportunity again.
1: Yeah, Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate you covering science topics and giving us the, the chance to share our research.
0: Please. My guest was Shane Caulfield, PhD candidate at the James Branderson Lab in UCI's Department of Earth System Science. His latest article published in the American Geophysical Union is entitled, Climate-Driven Limits to Future Carbon Storage in California's Wildland Ecosystems, and how California's carbon mitigation efforts may be thwarted by climate change itself. Higher heat will limit the ecosystem's role in removing atmospheric CO2. We'll be right back with Inside the 45th. Don't go away. Welcome back to Ask a Leader.
2: I'm Evan Duran and I am Inside the 45th.
0: Well, thank you, Evan, for joining us today. Evan is a product of the Irvine School District, and he's a Cal State Fullerton business administration major coming to us today from Irvine, from his home. Evan, let's have you give us your voting story, a little bit about the political culture in which you were raised and how it informs you right now.
2: Yeah. So I'm a relatively young voter. I'm only 23. So I have only really been voting. I started voting when I was 18. I actually, um, it's pretty funny at my high school, they actually had a voter registration set up for, you know, new voters to register. And so that's how I got involved. My very first time was registering there. And my first major election was um, in 2016. So, you know, I grew up in a pretty, what I would describe as an apolitical household. Not super strong beliefs one way or the other, but um, since but then, they I've voted,
0: kind of... they voted all the time. They saw um, you and they had the sticker around, or you uh, you saw that sticker elsewhere.
2: Um, I voted no. sticker. You know, I actually my I so I grew up with my mom and my older sister, and they actually don't vote all that often. Um, they actually just started voting. I want to say in twenty twenty, maybe they had before that, but that was the last time, at least in that I can remember that they voted. So, growing up, I didn't have much exposure to that.
0: So your uh, initial run was the 2016. How outrageous can that be?
2: <laughs> so. Yeah, it's, it, was, it was a pretty surreal experience, you know, especially for a new voter like myself to try and you know, try and make sense of everything being so young. Yeah, it was definitely a historic election too.
0: So when you said you were voting, uh, you registered to vote in school. So was it before you actually turned 18, like what they do on the campuses or you registered after you became voting age eligible? So
2: I, I can remember correctly, they had, um, like you had mentioned, I, I was not 18 yet, but they had, you know, a system in place where you could register to vote like a couple months early prior to when you turned 18. So I was probably, you know, 17, just going on 18. And then um, that's when I first registered.
0: So, and were you participating in the primary for 2020, 2016? Because um, it was moved up. That was, or no, it was moved up for the 2020, not yet for the 2016.
2: You know, I don't recall. Uh, I just I remember just you know the with the presidential election being so contentious at the time. I kind of you know I maybe I was not as informed about the uh, if I voted in that to be honest. I was not involved. In the well, party. and
0: the, the that's when California was about to change the schedule. They moved up it, this state moved up the presidential primary several like three four months in order to be a force to be reckoned with the actual nominee for both parties so that uh, maybe that's one reason why maybe maybe california made a good move with engaging more voters by moving up that presidential primary every 4 years not every 2 years no, but it's going to be a, it's going to be calling on us to be sophisticated and knowing oh it's not going to be march in 2022 it's going to be in june the primary so right is that on your radar um, you know, I always
2: try and uh, keep informed and try and, uh, you know, keep in touch with everything going on. So, yeah, it's definitely something I've been thinking about. Um, I've been kind of more tuned into the, you know, the 2022 midterms. But yeah, the primary will be uh, for sure. So actually,
0: looking under your hood, when did you start thinking about 2022 as a thing?
2: Um, Honestly, pretty much as soon as, you know, the votes were called in 2020, I knew that, you know. Um, This midterm season would be really important on a national level for sure. And um, since we have our representative up in 2022, in the 45th, um, that was something I've just been thinking about a lot, trying to figure out, you know, how best I can get involved and how I can, you know, um, stay informed.
0: So you have you been active in various kind of movement politics or in keeping in touch with your incumbent congressperson?
2: Um, Not in a very direct way. That's something I've been trying, I've been wanting to try and get more into as 2022 comes along. Um, I saw, especially with all of the political contention in the last couple of years, that, you know, direct action is really important, especially for young people. So that's something I've really been interested in trying to get into and hopefully we'll be able to for the midterms.
0: So I was wondering, when I was talking, we were talking about your family raising you and sort of any kind of political culture you were immersed in, do your peers influence you or is it the other way around?
2: Um, you know, I like to think there's a pretty good dialogue between myself and my peers. Um, I try just on my own to not get into the, you know, echo chamber or the bubble that a lot of people, especially people my age, uh, tend to get into on social media and things like that. So, but I would say that I try and influence and try and not not in a, you know, judgmental way, but try and, you know, inform my peers and hopefully get them to get be more politically active.
0: So then for those of you who've just joined us, my guest is constituent of California's 45th congressional district, Evan Dren, and he's also a business administration major at Cal State Fullerton, completing his undergrad degree this December. And so how closely do you follow Congresswoman Katie Porter's work?
2: Um, You know, I think especially over the last couple of um, months, I think she's kind of gone onto the national stage a bit more. I've, you know, tried to keep in touch, uh, like in touch with what she's doing. And um, I wouldn't say that I'm the most informed follower, but she's definitely someone that's been on my radar, especially since, you know, she's going up in the midterms
0: and it's you know i'm going to go through all kinds of constituents in our 45th and i I, i'm going to be really interested in knowing how much of an idea people have about who she is and what she comports with some people are going to say oh i know about the whiteboard others are going to say i don't know what that is and or i i think i've heard about it so she's your first incumbent then then so there's is there any sort of for you any kind of idea of What kind of representation the 45th has had previous to her incumbency?
2: From what I understand, the 45th was a pretty um, conservative district for a long time, and that she was one of the first Democrats to kind of flip this district, to the best of my understanding.
0: Okay, so you do have a little history about that. Well, how do you want someone to represent you in the U.S. Congress, Evan?
2: Um. I would say that I would just want someone who can kind of view things from, you know, a standpoint of just kind of objective reality. I think especially now, um, a lot of, you know, politicians tend to pander to viewpoints and ideologies that seem kind of really alternate and really out there. Um, And so for me personally, just someone who can kind of, you know, be in this reality is something that's uh, really important.
0: Well, in what ways—in finance or in the budget, in uh, immigration, or anything? I mean, what kind of in reality would you think about?
2: Um, I would think about something like, yeah, definitely with things like immigration um, policies relating around voting, especially. Um, I know we've seen a lot of legislation go through um, in a lot of in other states that kind of have rolled back voting rights. So I think kind of someone who has a more realistic view and understanding of voting rights. Um, And climate change is a big one for me too. So someone who can really engage with and understand climate science in a real and, you know, scientific way.
0: So what are you and your peers considering about what the federal government, U.S. Congress's role is in student debt?
2: You know, I think uh, a lot of People my age, I, I've been thankful enough to not have to get into debt to complete my undergrad that, you know, every time I talk to someone, it seems like that's kind of the opposite, right? A lot of people I know have gone into debt. And so I would like to see um, the Congress step in in some way to try and either relieve debt, maybe through direct uh, debt relief. Um, but, you know, I'm not sure what the what the best way would be.
0: Okay. But and the Cal State Fullerton peers are amongst them, or I'm not. I mean, you've got your pool of your known um, your associations from high school and and Irvine Unified School District. But between that and Cal State Fullerton, not not so much discussion about student loans and student debt. Um, You know, a lot of my
2: peers, a lot of people I know, like you had mentioned, from Cal State Fullerton and from you know, high school, it it ranges. So I know some people that have, are really deep into debt and then therefore are really keen on, um, you know, debt relief and kind of what role the federal government would have to pay and that. And other people I know who are kind of in a similar boat as I am, who, you know, didn't need to go into too much debt to complete their undergrad or their college experience. And so are kind of more agnostic or, you know, want those kind of political
0: actions moved elsewhere. So even if maybe you don't, have directly skin in this student loan game. Is it something though that concerned you that your peers ought to have the lucky financial break you have in that?
2: Oh, definitely. I I
0: mean, does it it concern you or do you think like, no, I've, I've got my sights on other stuff. Thank you very much.
2: You know, definitely, I would say that, um, you know, student loans and the rising, you know, student loan debt nationally is of big concern, especially of people in my generation. You know, a lot of us went to college right after our, our kind of we're growing up in the post 2008 financial crisis. And so, um, kind of, our job prospects and everything like that it hasn't really turned out to be always, um, you know, what we had expected. So I can imagine a lot of people got into debt, not realizing that the financial situation they'd be in now. And all of that has been kind of increased with COVID-19 and the economic situation since then. So I do think that there needs to be some kind of way to deal with it. I'm just not sure what the best way would be for sure.
0: Okay. Well, you certainly are uh, emerging into a professional life here post-graduation. And with, as you said, we're, the, the shedding, the Great Recession, and the whole reworking of the workplace as the pandemic dimmer switches being applied here, it's a, it's a the seismic activity on your feet is considerable as a, a young professional, I must say, just, just to take stock with you. Well, what would let's just say you got 30 minutes with Congresswoman Katie Porter and just just you and her. I mean, maybe her chief of staff is taking copious notes, but just, just the two of you, What would you do with that time with her? Um, I would just kind of want to
2: get an understanding of where she views trying to bridge the gap between a lot of, you know, a lot of constituents and, you know, across the 45th and across the country really um, seem to be living very different lives between, you know, rural Americans and urban Americans and uh, Americans of color and all of these different uh, intersectional pieces that transcend us. So I want to kind of understand where she is in trying to, you know, build unity amongst Americans, trying to cope with the polarization that's been going around in the political space, how she wants to fix that and get that under control.
0: Do you want to be more specific than that? In what area, what sector? Um,
2: you know, I would say, if I had 30 minutes with Congresswoman Porter, I would kind of want to know how she intends or what her thoughts are on kind of fixing or mending the polarization in America, um, you know, especially around, I think, you know, the topic of race has been... Of huge importance over the last year, I think that's something. Especially, I think in the 45th, as we grow into a more um, diverse congressional district, I wanted, I would like to know how she kind of views that whole um, space and how she hopes and wants to work within the uh, Congress to try and build, you know, more kind of racial equity and stuff like that. I think that would be really interesting to try and get her idea on.
0: Okay. So Evan, are there other um, considerations as a constituent? Um,
2: well, I think one of the main things I really like about Congresswoman Porter is that she comes off as so genuine and uh, such a, like a real person, you know, I think a lot of politicians can kind of come off as disingenuous or fake. So I really appreciate that she, you know, comes off and owns who she is. I really liked the way she, you know, addresses people, like you mentioned with the whiteboard, really comes off and is an expert on things. I think we need more Congress people like that. So I really appreciate the way she does that.
0: So there is that gentleman from Fullerton that crashed her town hall. She right. it was not a rally. I'm choosing my words very wisely. She was conducting a town hall, which was to convey what the child tax credit, what it was like, how it was going to work it was it's a new kind of a rescue for households with children and so this person who is ostensibly going to challenge her in the primary uh from fullerton i don't know if you if he's i think he's been quite active in sort of disruptive he was having a rally versus the town hall she was having so Mm -hmm. i think this is a kind of a signal, and I don't know if you picked up that what the signal portends for the 2022 campaign season.
2: Yeah, it definitely seems like it's going to be, um, you know, a contested season. I know that um, a lot of the GOP is really trying to push out uh, the Democrats in this seat, in this uh, district, especially. So it seems to be, you know, quite contentious. I'm not, uh, yeah, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well,
0: that, I mean, I think the convention was understood when a town hall was presented, constituents came with questions. They didn't come to simply disrupt and try to shut it down. Right. And when Congressman Campbell would come, he didn't really have very many town halls, but when he came, constituents of all kinds would come, even though it wasn't a very long town hall. We... What anybody would come with a question and hope the question was answered and and so on. But this was an early kind of disruption activity, and uh, it's and the, the nature of the disruption portends, I think, different things. And I just didn't know if you had a particular take about that and if it's going to make you do things differently than you might have thought otherwise.
2: Yeah, it's definitely um, a bit concerning when you see. You know people trying to turn a what is normally a very respectful gathering and town hall into something that can be a bit more sensational so i think that kind of um will play into how this race is kind of portrayed for sure
0: because as you said if, if katie porter's style is is genuine she's just she wants to be an applied office holder so it's moving information out getting information back. So there's a, there's a kind of a productive function going on as opposed to, uh, you know, a missed opportunity that constituents are uh, denied a full chance to have that exchange of information. So it's, um, it's, it's very concerning, I think, to to many at this point. Well, are you going to get involved in any kind of party politics stuff? Or is it movement politics? Or?
2: Yeah, I was hoping to volunteer for Porter's midterm campaign. I was, I wanted to try and at least do some phone banking or something like that. Um, Patricia did that pretty recently. So I think she, she was involved. So I was hoping to get involved as well.
0: Okay. Evan Duran, I really thank you for your time today and I wish you success in completing your degree come this December.
2: Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It was a great pleasure. And yeah, thanks so much.
0: My guest was constituent of California's 45th Congressional District, Evan Duran. He'll be completing his degree this December at Cal State Fullerton. And for folks, if you wanna participate in this segment, you can email me at cshambaugh at KUCI.org and let's get you on the calendar. If you've been hearing any of these four segments, you know that all are welcome. Well, that's my wrap. If you've missed any portion of this or other shows, you can always go to askaleader.com. Talk with you next week. Thank you, everyone, for listening.